everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast. Got a ton of mailbag questions to get through. Anyone, again, who is here live with us one last time, you can ask questions in the room. You could request to speak. Um, I will throw you on. Just as a reminder, you are being recorded. Let's just get right into this because we have a have a ton of questions right now. Um, the first question that I thought was really interesting, just based off all the injuries we have seen in the playoffs this year, is should the NBA delay some of these games uh, because of the injuries? And that came from at Ida Y Russ. Um, I will say you can't do that just because obviously the schedule's already been made, but there would be the element of, oh, why didn't you, why are you delaying the conference finals when you didn't do that during the semifinals? Who knows if that gives James Harden more time to rest for the Nets? Maybe you get Kyrie back somehow um, for Brooklyn, Uh, LeBron and AD, of course, with, with the Lakers. So yeah, I just don't think you could do that, you know, morally, competitively, it just wouldn't make sense. The other interesting thing here, and I think if you gave the Suns, as an example, truth serum, they want to start the Western Conference Finals on time rather than wait, because while they're without CP3, the Clippers are without Kawhi. And I'm not saying that, you know, the, the Suns would lose to the Clippers if they had Kawhi. I would still pick the Suns. That would be, you know, full strength. I'd go Suns over Clippers in seven. But you know you're going to get CP3 back, and we hope he's okay after returning that positive COVID test. Kawhi looks like he's probably just not going to play again during the playoffs or, or during this season. We don't know the extent of his ACL injury yet. And so if you're Phoenix, it would almost behoove you to not have the series delayed. Try to play the one to three games without Chris Paul, just so that in the event Kawhi did come back, um, you're not also giving him time to return. Because I think for them, and this might just say how I speak to how I feel about their depth and also Devin Booker in general as one of his bandwagoners. Um, I I think that they can navigate a Clippers team without Kawhi just as well uh, as they could if Chris Paul comes back and you have to go up against a Kawhi. Again, I don't think that's going to happen, and the NBA will not postpone these games. You just you can't do it. Uh, there would be if this were the start of the playoffs, like maybe, but you have to delay all the series. You have to get into all these um, all these injuries. So no, I can't see them being delayed. We have a question in the chat from Jake Weist. Uh, what do you think, who do you think is going to come out of the East? So selfishly, and I don't want to date this for our actual podcast listeners, but I have the Sixers coming out of the East this year. Sixers Suns were my finals pick with the Suns winning the finals. I'm actually on record. That is not me just picking as the playoffs have unfolded. Uh, I don't think the Sixers are going to beat the Bucks though, if they, if they end up beating Atlanta, just having to watch Philly's half court offense is it's brutal down the stretch of games and the Ben Simmons stuff. I feel really bad for him. It's also incredibly legitimate when you have someone who's just so disengaged from the offense by design. And there are other things that doc rivers maybe could do to keep him involved later in games. But then you just have to grapple with this idea that, Oh, he'll get fouled with the ball in his hands. And he might have one of those nights where he shoots four 14 from the foul line or just something, you know, terribly bad like that and that's a real issue for them and they were already kind of short that shot creator I'm a, I'm a big believer that you can win a title with someone like Nikola Jokic or Joel Embiid as your best player I don't think there's a replacement for having that face-up wing or guard down the stretch of really close games and I'm not even saying a Damian Lillard who is just 
dude is an alien. Any clutch shot he takes, like you have to assume it's going in and the data like pretty much backs that up. But like a Jamal Murray in Denver, you could tell that they missed him a ton throughout that postseason series. Philly kind of had that element with Jimmy Butler, let him get away. That situation soured. Uh, don't want to rehash that. The closest they come to that player now is probably Tobias Harris or Tyrese Maxey might even be the better option there. I think he's more of an every level scorer than Tobias Harris really is. That's also just not Tobias Harris's strength. Like, yeah, he can dribble into some threes. He can bully some some smaller wing defenders. And Tobias Harris is really good. If you ask him to create too much, even when he was on that Clippers team where he was essentially, you know, one of the top two options again, they they ran through Danilo Gallinari a lot more because he's just more comfortable in those types of situations. And so if you're looking at Tyrese Maxey or Shake Milton as your best just sort of perimeter option there, that becomes a problem. And we've seen it in Hawks games specifically. If, they, if you can force the ball after Joel Embiid's hand, which one, it's not easy to do, but you can do it. Uh, the Sixers just don't have a ton of other viable options around him. And all of a sudden you put even more of an onus on him during crunch time after he just was super high usage for the first three quarters of games and he has to defend his ass off in addition to being everything to Philly on offense, you can see him getting gassed down the stretch. And so even when he's not necessarily perfectly defended or they're not sending a ton of bodies at him on the catch, he might just be more inclined to defer anyway, which puts you in all sorts of trouble. So I'll stand by my Philly pick because I'm stubborn and it would be really cool if my actual final setup was right. Uh, and I feel probably better against Philly going up against Milwaukee, who tends to crap the bed on offense every once in a while or more often than that, than I would if they were going up against Brooklyn, even if Kyrie wasn't playing and James Harden was playing on, you know, 1.25 hamstrings or whatever it ends up being. I, I still just, you, you look at the Bucks and Drew Holiday, you figure has to play better at some point. Chris Middleton, perennially underrated. He's fantastic. And then having Giannis to just bulldoze his way towards the basket. It seems like that team... Um, they're probably just as shallow as Philly, but but at the top, the the talent is there. And when you're looking specifically at crunch time. So my head is saying that the Sixers will not come out of the East. But again, I picked the Sixers to come out of the East initially. I have to ride with it. Um, I'll die with it is more like what I need to say, but I'm going to ride with it anyway. Meyer Rothbaum asks, is Ty Lue a good coach for playing Terrence Mann or a bad coach for not playing him earlier in the playoff slash series? Just a correction there for Meyer. Uh, that is superstar, future multi-time MVP, Terrence Mann. Just wanted to get that correction out there. Look, the I think the most bizarre thing Ty Lue said, I can't remember which game it was before, but Ty Lue said that Terrence Mann was out of the rotation. It took him too long to get away from those Rondo minutes. At the same time, I think he has shown the willingness to futz and fiddle with his rotation in the playoffs, in part because of injuries. You know, we, Kawhi was injured. But even Serge Ibaka as well, that's that's going to really just coax you into throwing out more unconventional front court units in general. But you look at the lineups the Clippers have played, and there's it looks mattingly inconsistent by the sheer number of five-man combinations. We have seen, I think, roughly, exactly, actually, it's two trillion five-man combinations for the playoffs. But seriously, I think the experimental nature of him ends up being a good thing in the long run. There are some obvious lineup questions where it's like hey why are you trying to get away of what why are you trying to get away with rondo for so long it took you too long to get away from that uh, randomly throwing to marcus cousins into that jazz series at the beginning of it at the same time it seems like he's trying to get a feel for what he has and he saw eventually that downsizing was going to work against utah it worked a lot better than i expected against utah just given the 
I know the Clippers have the personnel to downsize. I just don't look at, you know, when you're seeing some of the players who log minutes at center for them, if it's a Marcus Morris, if it's a Nick Batum, I just didn't think that was going to be a mismatch that punished Utah in the same way uh, Houston did a couple of years back with, with their small ball units. Still, I think I would lean towards my co-host, Adam, who is not here today, uh, other engagements, something about it being Father's Day or whatever. He has a kid and a family. Talk about terrible priorities on his behalf. But I lean towards Ty Lue being a really good and maybe underrated coach. Um, yes, I'm throwing pot shots at you, Adam, because I'm just going to assume that you listen to this. So, yeah, let's you know, let's see what he does during this Phoenix series. Um, that's just going to be – that has to be a chess match more than anything. We've seen Monty Williams is willing to – experiment as well um get away from Dario Sarge at the five units if they're not working um or lean on them like we saw in the regular season if Aiton starts roller coastering which he has not been doing during the playoffs he's just been fucking spectacular uh I'd say pardon my friends but I'm actually not sorry Aiton has just been he's been annihilating dudes on on uh just more aggressive on offense and even better has proved really solid defensively for Phoenix that's going to be fun. I want to see Chris Paul come back. I'd love to see Kawhi come back too. I hate seeing stars get injured. I hate seeing players get injured. I want to see full strength series. That being said, uh, I'm with with Chris Paul out for a little bit, and then with Kawhi, I'm just assuming he's done for the postseason. I mean, just I I see ACL. It's in his right leg. He's had issues with that in the past. He's just I'm going to assume he's done. That's going to be a really interesting chess match, and so maybe we'll get a better feel, or Tyler was a chance to really build up his reputation or or harm it through this series. Um, Jake Weiss did say in the chat was we were just talking about the Sixers before. I think Giannis is going to struggle a lot um, through Joel in the lane rather than KD or Griffin. I would probably agree. Um, I just don't know what to expect. There were moments in the, or there have been moments in the Hawks series. And look, we're talking like Philly's going to be in this. We have a question about how the Hawks match up with um, Milwaukee. So we'll get to that in a second. But Embiid had some just the first, like early on in the Hawks series. Maybe he was still getting a feel for how he was going to play on that meniscus injury, but he just didn't like always look right. And if he's really as tattered as he's been later in games, that's going to provide Giannis with opportunities, even in the half court, I think. The key, though, against the Sixers for Giannis, and I, it's like this against all teams, you need to score earlier in the shot clock. When you look at the, the shot distribution for Milwaukee earlier on in that second-round series against Brooklyn, like they were not getting as many of their looks in that, like, 18 to to 15 second range or 22 to 15 second range, even breaking it down by both those slots. So that's just always going to be the key. I do. I agree that Philly just has more personnel to throw at Giannis if they want to than Brooklyn could ever hope. Uh, Not just Joel Embiid. You have Ben Simmons to use too, if you really want to go that route. And I, I think, and people are probably going to shame me for this. You can try to bias Harris depending on like what the offense from Milwaukee is looking like. If it's to, if it's in the half court and they've slowed down and your defense is set, you could give Tobias Harris a crack at that. Uh, one thing the Sixers might want to just watch is their bench heavy units. They did save them a little bit against the Hawks in one of those games, but if you come out of that rounds, you're probably going to need to to get away from that. Uh, let's get to that question. That's about Atlanta and Philly, but it comes from Kim. Who is an easier matchup for the Bucks, Atlanta or Philly? I, I think it's Atlanta, and I don't. I'm not going to spend too much time on this because we're recording this like just before the tip of, or no, we're recording this well before the tip of the Sixers Hawks game seven. And I don't want to again date this too hard, but you look at Atlanta, and I don't know that they would have a good Giannis defender to begin with. You're now missing DeAndre Hunter, who I assume would have gotten a ton of reps against him. 
I guess you could try and get away with Clint Capella on him, and I actually don't hate that, but you need Giannis to be at the five in those scenarios uh, because then you're going to be taking him away from uh, Brooke Lopez or just the other matchups which are personnel on the court are going to get wonkier. I will say I've been pleasantly surprised with how John Collins has played defensively in the postseason. He did, you know, Julius Randle was terrible in that first-round series, but, like, John Collins had some really tough reps against him and so kudos to him we've even seen him have some just good moments where he's helping against Joel Embiid he's he's defended Tobias Harris a little bit as well and so really kudos to him on that I those would be your best option I don't know what else you try you're not going to try Bogdanovich against Giannis um like do we get to a point where they have to rely on Solomon Hill or Tony Snell you're that's just going to be a problem and you move over to Philly and there's just they have a, a ton of you know not having Danny Green um, at least for the start of that would-be series, could be a problem. But you have Matisse Seibel, who can check Drew Holiday or Chris Middleton. You have Ben Simmons, who could check whoever you want him to, including Giannis. And then you have Joel Embiid, who I don't know if you want him as the primary on Giannis, but if you're going to have him drop back, like, yeah, he'll be there to make life hell on Giannis too. So I do think that Philly poses the the tougher matchup. But just what we've seen from Trey Young in the playoffs, um, if he gets going downhill, the decisions he's going to make, um, if he stops and pulls up, if he stops for his floater, finds John Collins on those those lobs, um, sprays out to shooters on the Hawks. That I, I do think both of these teams are equipped to give Milwaukee trouble, but I think Milwaukee matches up better defensively, which which matters to me. Um, old friend bear asks, "You guys are pretty reasonable and realistic about this stuff, so here goes. What can the Jazz do to improve? I mean, not catching a team that's on fire and getting healthy obviously helps." Will they consider moving Gobert? Possible with the current contract, Conley's future, who to draft. I haven't gotten into enough of my draft prep work yet. I'm just an 11th hour crash course guy there. You're not going to draft somebody that helps you if you're Utah immediately. It just doesn't happen. Um, you're not trading Gobert, and it's not because of the the contract. I know he signs that massive, um, I think it was like $206 million it can be up worth um, extension. He's a three-time defensive player of the year who just makes your entire defense he is a defense unto himself I think the bigger problem for Utah was its wing defenders letting I know it's designed to funnel guys towards Rudy Gobert but when you're playing the best jump shooting team in the NBA or one of the best jump shooting teams depending on how you feel about uh, you know you know the Blazers aren't there anymore and the, the Celtics took a lot of jump shots they're not alive anymore but the Clippers were a fantastic three-point shooting team when you have Kawhi you have someone who just wants to torch you from the mid-range they were letting guys get by them too quickly. And I think that's been the biggest problem for the jazz is they need these bigger wing defenders. It was something that we cited um, earlier or even before the season. And I still think it came to bear. You don't need him as much in the regular season because I think Rudy Gobert can give you a top five defense on his own. But when you're facing a team that's going to have time to manipulate their lineups and then yes, you're, you know, Rudy Gobert can't be responsible for contesting three pointers or even getting out to the mid range all the time. But now when you're compounding that with the fact that the Clippers were also downsizing, that starts to, I don't want to say it turns Rudy Gobert into a liability, but it does put him in an awkward situation where there's only so much he can do to impact the game there. And so the two things I would look at is, can you just get a bigger wing defender uh, to throw at, like, it's you're not going to get an all-world defender. You're going to be working with the mini-mid-level exception, and that's assuming you're willing to to use it. But $5.7 million is the most you're going to spend on a free agent unless you broker a sign and trade, but that gets all 
Um, you know, they don't really have a ton of assets themselves, but then they would also be hard capped, which is tough if you want to bring back Mike Conley. I will say on the Mike Conley front, pay him, bring him back. But I, you don't want to give out a damaging contract from a team perspective. But I think what we also saw earlier on in the, the Clipper series was that he's kind of mission critical to keeping Rudy Gobert involved on the offensive end. When you just look at who's going to find Rudy Gobert most efficiently or look for him on his roles. I think he's just better equipped to do that than Donovan Mitchell, which is why he's such a huge part of of Utah's success. So definitely bring back Conley. You're not trading Gobert. The other thing that I I think they need to do, though, is you need to give yourself the option of going small. I know you don't want to pull your $200 million man in those situations, but if it's down the stretch and you see that it's becoming a problem, it would be good to have someone who can play some small ball five. And is that, you know, is Rudy Gobert's friend, Nicholas Batum, he's going to be a free agent. Would he consider signing in Utah? That's someone who can give you those minutes while also helping you with your wing defense. He really doesn't qualify for the athletic part, though, of that. Otto Porter Jr., someone that Utah, we can all say confidently, has long been enamored with, dating back to his, I think it was 2017 free agency. And I believe they were supposed to be interested in him if he was going to get bought out by Orlando, which never happened. He's going to be looking to reboot his stock. Maybe he wants to go somewhere that can promise him a starting spot, which Utah clearly can cannot. And also, I want to make this clear, Otto Porter Jr. has not been good, aside from the injuries uh, and questionable partying during a pandemic. But the injuries, uh, the offense has been off for him. I would just assume he'll shoot better in Utah when his role is simplified compared to what's happening in Chicago and, and Orlando. But those are like the level of players that you're looking at with what Utah can spend. And I would say go out there and get someone who can give you those minutes, at least some more explosive minutes as a wing defender. David Nawaba is a name I thought about. It's you, you need to go after like a, a Jay Crowder. I'm not trying to troll here, but he would be the perfect player for this team. And there aren't a ton of those guys, especially ones that are bargains, just sort of floating around the, the free agency markets. But that was, that's what you're going to have to do is make those moves on the margins and you need to also give those guys more looks during the regular season because you can't just all of a sudden go to the postseason and decide like, oh, all right, we're going we're gonna to go this route. You want to get a feel for what they're really able going to, to, be, to give you there. I expect the Jazz to look largely the same. If there's something they can do, though, diversify your, your wing rotation or even just your front court rotation. It would be better if you can fold that player into one, like I said, and, and Otto Porter is probably the best fitting slash best actual option that they could get given what what they could spend uh it is interesting though because i know utah was injured Uh, mike conley only making his debut in that game six donovan mitchell i know mark jackson kind of suggested that he was faking his injury he was not faking his fucking injury that was bothering him throughout the series and uh so if you're healthier you probably beat the clippers you think at the same time there's really no excuse you blew a 20 it was a 25 point lead uh like in that game and you also lost the previous game when they didn't have Kawhi Leonard there's just you know you were missing Mike Conley as well but Rudy Gobert Donovan Mitchell Joe Ingles Bojan Bogdanovich that team is better at least should be on paper than a Clippers team that's headlined by Paul George and has Reggie Jackson and Nick Batum Uh, fantastic stories this season by the way and I know it'll get people into the conversation of these guys maybe not playing as well as they should be and 
in smaller markets only to end up in a, a flagship glamour market and start playing better. Reggie Jackson was just genuinely injured in Detroit all the time. Uh, you know, they built a pretty formidable offensive attack at one point around his pick and roll wizardry. So his really isn't a surprise. Nick Batum, yeah, he cratered in Charlotte before he was basically yanked out of the rotation last year. Uh, don't really know what that is, but that was just sort of a resurgent season from him. That being said, like those are the guys, you know, Marcus Morris, when you're looking at, and Terrence Mann, who's been fantastic, like the Jazz should have won that series, even as banged up as they were, when you're just looking at the the talent level. And so not the greatest matchup of them because the Clippers could go small. You do have to go into this offseason, though, I think asking some pretty tough, really existential questions about your identity and what you can do to change it and whether you believe that this team is you know championship ready as is. And I, I believe it is. I just think there needs to be some smaller tweaks or maybe it's, look, be more aggressive. And is it time to shop with Joe Ingles? Um, do you think if you're bringing back Conley that maybe you can shop William Bogdanovich, who I know a lot of people aren't crazy about his contract. Uh, he's still probably just closer, but he shot 50% on pull-up threes in the, in the playoffs this year. So there will be a team when you look at the two years left on his deal. If you really wanted to move him, um, two years, a little bit under $40 million. I don't know what you could get for him, but Joe Ingles was entering the final year of his $13 million deal. He'll definitely be attractive. You do have Derek Favors' deal. I think this, that player option, though, will scare some teams away. He's about two years and a little under $20 million left, the final of which is a player option. I would probably argue that Jordan Clarkson's contract might be the, the hardest to move, and he was fantastic this year. But uh, he's just such a wild card that unless you're dead set on just having him be that bench scorer who's going to come in and just throw up shots without having a conscience, which, I again, there's a level of importance to it. Just the three years on that at roughly you know thirteen million dollars on on average that gets a little fickle for some. So if you really wanted to make a splashy trade, it's one as I said, not going to be Gobert. You're looking at an Ingles or a Bogdanovich uh, would would be my guess there. So I just don't know what you can get with those guys because you know every team is on the hunt for the wings that I was sort of just describing. And while you do have at least another wing to offer in turn, it's just like you look at the free agency market like this, you just look at the the wing market in general. There aren't a ton of guys who could be traded. And sometimes when you're looking at this, uh, it's just outside the Utah's asset range when you're looking at trade candidates. Uh, maybe Reggie Bullock is someone that they could look at in free agency would be really good for them. Um, he's probably better against smaller wings though. And again, when you only have the mini MLE, like the Knicks should be willing to pay that. And he, in my book, is probably going to get the full mid-level. I just don't, you know, the ready option made isn't there. Is it a Tory Craig or that, that would really help you. And are you, are you willing to play him? So I actually think Utah, while there's not going to be a ton of change, it is kind of an important off season because they're so close, but they're just clearly not there. And I, you can say, Oh, if they were fully healthy, Mike Conley's not getting any younger. Um, these injuries happen after playing an entire season. So you can't just necessarily bank on being healthy. And you could even say guys who haven't really had injury problems a ton. I know Boyan Bogdanovich missed some time last year, but he's not getting any younger. Um, ditto for Joe Ingles, of course. That was a longer answer on the Jazz than I expected to give. Uh, but they're, you know, they're, they're actually really fascinating to me. This next question comes from James. What's the highest three-point percentage in a single playoff run? given some sort of minimum attempts taken. I'm thinking about Seth Curry here. That's who I thought about when this question was asked. And so I sorted, this is like arbitrary, but I looked at anyone who was taking at least 53 point attempts in a single postseason campaign. 
Uh, Jeff Hornacek is first at 58.6%. Ray Allen is second, 57.1%. Did it 2010-2011 um, with Boston. Pedro Stoyakovich, when he was with the Hornets in 2007-2008, is third. Fourth is Steve Smith from 2000 with Portland. Paul Pierce is actually on here, which surprises me, when he was with, with Washington 2015, 52.4%. I'm not going to go down this whole list. I'm just going to go to number six because I find it funny. Al Horford in 2017 with Boston was 51.9% on that minimum. So I decided to up it just because those, I guess those names make sense. But when I saw Al Horford, Jim, 34-year-old Jim Jackson, uh, even Robert Covington was in from 2020, made the top 10. I just decided to up the criteria to 75 attempts. And Seth Curry is the leader all time so far in players who have attempted at least 75 three-pointers in the playoffs. He's shooting 50% on them. He has a chance to finish with um, the highest clip in NBA history among guys who have taken that many. You could filter it out to um, you know 100 at that point if he keeps his pace. But J.R. Smith is right behind him. Uh, there, When you round their percentages, they're both actually at 50%. He took 80 attempts with Cleveland in 2017 across 18 games. Nash is third, 2003, with Dallas, 48.7%. Danny Green, not surprising. 48.2% in 2013 with the Spurs. And then fifth, Ray Allen makes it again. 2001 with the Bucks. I love Milwaukee Bucks, Ray Allen, and Seattle Supersonics, Ray Allen. That dude was uh, more all-around hooper than people give him credit for. He was at 47.9%. Uh, Danny Green, by the way, makes the top 10 twice in this, which is he's also number seven. I just like to use that as a reminder that Danny Green is still good, and the Lakers were out of their minds to just sort of use him as a throwaway after kind of seeing how the Spurs used him as a throwaway in that Kawhi Leonard trade. I know Danny Green has missed a ton of big threes, and I also know he's not the same defender that he's always been, although he will still mess up your life in transition. And I think he can check, you know, no, he shouldn't be checking Trey Young. He can still give you quality minutes against some of the higher-end guards, um, some of those wings, too. There's a reason he's missed so many, been in a position to miss so many big-time threes. It's because he's good and valuable to teams that are really good. I'll be fascinated to see where he goes in free agency. If anyone from my previous Utah rant is wondering uh, if if he'd be good for them, I he's just you need someone again who's going to defend some of the bigger guys. Kind of would be interested to see Danny Green in either Milwaukee, Denver, or Portland would be fun. Assuming they kind of stay together, I know they're a little bit smaller on the perimeter. With we assume they're going to resign Norm. Uh, they have Dame. They have CJ McCollum. Danny Green. Among all those guys, I still think he's probably better to, well, not think, definitely among Dame and CJ, but uh, he can at least capably defend some threes. So those would be three teams that I'd be really interested in seeing him play for. This next question comes from, uh, I don't know where I missed it. Oh, okay. Uh, Nico Bellic, who do you think Denver should get for next season? Denver's another team where you kind of have to, look at their spending power and realize that there's a legitimate chance, you know, if, if a Will Barton opts out, if they want to re-sign Paul Millsap, if Jermichael Green opts out and they want to bring these guys back, they're going to be working with the mini mid level, which is 5.7 million as a really good team. They might be in a better position than most to get someone good with that. At the same time, uh, they're not among the, the glamor markets and more than that. And I'm not, I'm not trying to advocate for glamour markets here, but they're not a team that's necess- that's shown that they're going to cannonball deep into the luxury tax. And Jamal Murray's injury kind of complicates that for them because 
I would tell you right now, and I'm never going to, you know, I don't care about team governors spending their money. I'm not trying to get like get billionaires to pay less in luxury tax. I want to make that clear. I'm trying to deal with the reality of the situation. When you don't have Jamal Murray, your absolute best shot at a championship has been squandered. This team is just, it's legitimately a lot weaker without him. Are you going to be willing to spend? Even if you can open up, and they can, you know, if they don't want to bring back Paul Millsap, let's say Will Barton opts in, let's say Jermichael Green opts in, it gets easier to stay within under the apron to use the the, the full non-taxpayers mid-level, which is like a hair under uh, $10 million this season. And so that would open up a lot more options for them. Uh, I'm curious to see what they're willing to spend. Now, that being said, there are two ways that they could go if they were going to funnel their best spending tool. Uh, let's assume, assume that they use one of it. There's a couple different routes they could go if they're going to spend it on one player. You need another ball handler type uh, to replace Jamal Murray because off of a normal ACL recovery timeline, he's going to miss most or all of next season. And because he's so young, I know there's going to be the urgency. You want to see what he looks like with Aaron Gordon there and Michael Porter Jr. before both those two dudes are on different contracts. Uh, He's going to miss at least most of next year. So do you want another ball handler because you don't think it's going to be Facundo Campazzo? and Monte Morris really getting you there, and Jokic does need relief. I would argue you don't necessarily need that, especially if Will Barton is coming back, because he can give you some pressure on the rim and and some um, initiation on offense as well. You also have Michael Porter Jr. If he's healthy and not having back problems, no, he's not a creator, but we've seen that he can be basically a star on offense. And so I don't know that you need to go out there searching for another guy who could create his own shots. Maybe if you're trying to find a table setter, can you bring back Austin Rivers, who I think was really good for them? Yeah, I don't. You should not be spending your entire mid-level exception on him. I want to make that absolutely clear. Uh, the other route that they could go is focus on their wing defense because they did sort of they didn't did sort of they got burned there. Like that was a big problem that they had in in the playoffs. Even that you know you you go up against Portland and you beat them, but like that was still just something that they they struggled with. I don't know who you can get. This comes back to with what you could spend. If you have the non-taxpayers mid-level exception, someone like a Reggie Bullock might become realistic. Um, He could really help you. You could maybe take a flyer on Otto Porter. Trevor Reza's like 80 now. I don't know how like interested in him you're going to be. Tony Snell's a free agent and he might be able to come fairly cheap. You could look at bringing Wes Matthews. He plays well for for spurts defensively still. I just don't know how many minutes you're going to get out of him. Derek Jones Jr. could be interesting. I just don't think he's going to opt out of that money in Portland. He wasn't even playing for them uh, when they rolled into the postseason. I think you can argue that he should have been, but he is a liability on offense. And he shot a higher clip than normal from three in Portland, which anyone, it seems like any wing who just goes to Portland is most likely going to shoot a higher percentage than normal from three. I mentioned Danny Green for them would be really good. What you can do, I guess, is look at trades for Denver and just, you know, you're going to make moves on the margins. Maybe they're not even willing to spend whatever version of the tax uh, of the mid-level exception, excuse me, that they're working with. And so they're looking to exchange contracts for contracts that gets really difficult for them because they don't just have a ton of these middle money contracts. You can move, uh, you Jokic Murray off limits. Of course, I don't know why you get rid of Aaron Gordon when you need to improve your, your defense. And he checked a lot of, you know, like the smaller players for them. And I thought he held up pretty well aside from, you know, all the inconsistency on offense. Jermichael Green, if he opts in, that's okay. That's 7.6, but like that's, that's your fifth highest paid player as of right now. Will Barton is the player that I'd be looking at 
if he opts in, $14.7 million. I honestly don't have a feel for that player option. He was injured a lot of this year, and I don't think he would get as much money per year on the open market. That being said, there's a talent drain in free agency. So maybe he's not getting $14.7 million, $15 million a year. Is someone going to give him like four and 48 though? And so you're getting you know an, an extra $33 million, let's say, in guaranteed salary over four years. But if you still have him, if he opts in, what can you attach um, to sort of make a deal there? And, you know, a player that I would, honestly, this could be a decent swap for swap. Maybe Dallas needs to send, uh, maybe Dallas needs to send Denver or something else just based off the season Josh Richardson had. But Josh Richardson in, uh, Josh Richardson in, in Denver makes a bunch of sense for them. If Dallas, I'm assuming Josh Richardson opts in. Maybe not. Again, this free agency market is always going to be weird. Uh, but if you could do something like that, that could really help you. The other thing, if you want to take a bigger swing, and I'm not sure how willing Boston would be to do this after making the Kemba Walker trade and giving themselves more immediate cap flexibility and long-term, but Marcus Smart is extension eligible this year. They can give him up to a maximum of $17.2 million. If Marcus Smart wants that amount or more and isn't willing to sign, Boston has to look at one, are we willing to, let's say he'll sign an extension. Are you willing to pay him 17.2? If you're not willing to pay him that, you can't risk him going into the open market because there's a chance that he might get more as a starting salary. And you have to look at moving him. The trade I came up with was Monte Morris, um, Zeke Naji, and then the number 27 pick. Um, assume that happens after the draft so that everyone can trade their their draft picks legally and the Stepien rule doesn't come into play. Any Any sticklers out there for the CBA, like myself. I don't know that Najee really moves the needle for Boston anymore now that they have uh, Moses Brown in addition to Al Horford, in addition to Robert Williams, in addition to Grant Williams. So there need to be other moving parts there. The Nuggets do have Bull Bull. They have P.J. Dozier as well. They need better point guard play. And Monte Morris is about to start a three-year $27 million ex- extension, which is super team-friendly. Might be the best backup point guard in the league. Is certainly going to give you better creation in the playoffs than a Peyton Pritchard, who we saw them lean on. The number 26 pick, just, you know, Boston did just trade its own first round pick. So getting another prospect there, not a bad thing. And I know they'll run into some roster spot crunches. Uh, You're not going to trade a distant first round pick for him. And the Nuggets, I think, already traded 2023 is going to Orlando. I can double check that while I'm recording this. But so it would have to be like a Bull Bull or PJ Dozier. And if it's Dozier, I would question whether you should do it, knowing Marcus Smart's going to head towards free agency. But I think the. That sort of framework with the number 26 pick and then Monte Morris and then something else is how, um, and yeah, they traded Denver trade away 2025 as well. That's headed to Orlando. 2023 is going to Oklahoma city. So that's not going to happen. Would I do PJ Dozier, Monte Morris and number 26? I think Denver is the one that's probably giving up a ton there. I'd still probably do it if I'm them. I don't know how important Dozier is to you if, uh, Will Barton is still going to be there and you have Michael Porter Jr. And you have Aaron Gordon. Uh, He's on a great, he's on a super bare bones deal and he can shoot threes and he can give you some defense, but Marcus Smart really elevates your defense. You do of course then run into the issue of Smart, Gordon, Porter, restricted free agency or his extension is kicking in. Plus maybe Will Barton would all be hitting free agency or set to take on new deals at the same time. I think with Smart though, with Denver, you can look in the mirror and say, okay, we don't have Jamal Murray. But our championship window is just still open this season. And that's the that's the move if you're Denver, is can you make that bigger swing on the trade market? I don't think that they'll have the guts to do it after they already did it with Aaron Gordon and were sort of burned by the Murray injury. 
that would be the type of move, though, that I think would really elevate their needle. Uh, next question comes from Gabe Sanza as who leads the playoffs in unassisted three point shooting. Um, didn't have access to get this data exactly, but I did look at, let's look at the higher volume guys first. And among anyone who appeared in seven postseason games this year, and I'm just using seven because that implies that they played an entire series, um, like an entire full series, at least Luka Doncic, no surprise there. 93.5% of his made three-point field goals went unassisted. 91.7% of all his field goals went unassisted. Harden is two, 91.7 unassisted field goal rate on threes. Trey Young is third, 78.1%. Donovan Mitchell is fourth at 75%. And Chris Paul is fifth at 73.3%. I looked at then who is the best pull-up three-point shooter statistically so far in the playoffs. We had a we had, if you, it depends on what you want to use as a minimum. I went with seven games played and then 10 off the dribble, three point attempts. Chris Paul ranks first, mostly because he just hits the minimum. He's six of 10 on pull up threes during the playoffs. Uh, second place is Shake Milton of six of 11. That's 54.5%. If you're looking for higher volume, Boyer Bogdanovich, 11 of 22, 50%. Donovan Mitchell, super high volume, 45.7%. Um, for the postseason, 42 of 92. Luka Doncic is behind him. Kawhi Leonard is behind him. Seth Curry then checks in in the top eight at 42.1% to go with Tim Hardaway Jr., also tied at 42.1%, in case anyone cares about those type of playoff things. We have a speaker request from Noah, so I'm going to throw you on here, Noah. You should be good to go. Noah, are you there? Yes, what's up, Dan? How's it going, man? I'm good, I'm good. Obviously happy that Brooklyn was eliminated. But um, <laughs> we, when you were talking about the um, unassisted threes or something earlier, you brought up Al Horford, and that reminded me about the terrible trade that I saw go through um, this week. I got a lot of flack for criticizing this trade, obviously, and I'm not sure why. I understand the cap. The thing with cap and you have to get rid of Kemba Walker's contract or not. But I don't think that Brad Stevens needed to include the first round pick in order to get back Moses Brown or Al Horford, who I'm guessing Brad Stevens thinks can contribute right away. But I don't really I'm not sure how much it's definitely not going to be 2018 Al Horford. But what do you think about that trade? Like, do you, like do, one do is I'm playing microphone plugging uh, game here, but I actually, I 100% agree with you, Noah. I, it's not a terrible trade if Boston really, you know, they they did enable themselves to now re-sign Evan Fournier a little bit easier without paying as large of a, a tax bill. Uh, it also positions you if you want to, there are ways that you could figure out how to use your full non-taxpayer mid-level exception, which in turn makes the team better. That being said, number 16 that's almost a lotto pick. And I know we romanticize yeah. first round picks, but number 16 is what it costs to get rid of someone who, if he's healthy, is better than Al Horford and pl- can play at an all-star caliber level. And I know it's a big if with his knees, but like Al Horford is 35 years old and now you have this glut of bigs. And it's not, I don't think this was a sign of how much they value Moses Brown. That was, I think, I being, he had to be included Brown. for salary purposes. I just don't understand like why they couldn't even get Kenrich Williams. Or if you were going to give up number 16, there were ways that you could include Tristan Thompson's expiring contract then 
to save yourself even more money. And so that's really where I think they messed up. We have to see how this plays out. You know, if Kemba's, if this is one of those situations where they can't reboot Kemba's value in OKC, like they reboot everyone else's value, maybe that, you know, the, the report on his knees is worse than, than we know publicly. Maybe Al Horford is fantastic for Boston, but it's like at this rate, they have so many bigs, Robert Williams, Grant Williams. Are you going to play Al Horford at the four again? Which is what we saw was a disaster in Philly. So I think Horford's fit on Boston is fine, but you still need to move another big or two for the rotation to make sense. And before I, I'll throw it back to you, Noah, really quickly, I, they needed to get something else out of the deal if you want to give up the number 16 pick in my book. And my if it was Kendrick Williams, I actually would have been fine with it. But mostly, could you have found a way to move that Tristan Thompson contract? Because then I think that makes the the structure of this deal look a lot better. I think, obviously, Boston's biggest problem this year, injuries really hurt them. Um, their big man rotation was really confusing at best. and But at the same time, you're correct. With the 16th pick, I, people are talking about Moses Brown as a good value. I, I like Moses Brown, but I don't think he's worth a first-round pick. And He, he moves really been, slow, too. Like, yes, and he also might have, his production might have just been a product of the, uh, being on a terrible team. No hate to Moses Brown, but it's like – I'm I'm thinking like what if you had made that same trade like if you had made that same trade for Christian Wood that would have been a higher I feel like that would have been better you know and I think you could have made that same trade the 16th pick Kemba Walker for Christian Wood and throwing somebody else I think that would have been way better than getting Al Horford who's 35 who I don't think is going to be the same valuable piece to Boston's offense and defense that he was a couple years ago and Moses Brown, and whoever, you know? I, I really don't. And I honestly, I think Kemba Walker is better than people will, than NBA Twitter thinks he is. And Thank yes, you. And yes, the injuries do, do have, like, have hurt him a couple, has hurt his production. But when healthy, he's still a top 15 point guard. And when he's healthy, he can help Boston win games and or even do his best, as we saw a couple times this season. So I don't think... I think people are overva- overvaluing this trade and overvaluing Moses Brown and Al Horford and undervaluing Kemba Walker. Even at that contract, he's still only, what, 32 years old? And we all know point guards have a way higher lifespan now in the NBA. So, I don't know. I just I feel like that, that trade was a little questionable. I think you could have made this, that same trade, a first-round pick, um, Kemba Walker for a better big in Christian Wood, a young big, somebody who could help you win a big that they actually need, someone who's a better offensively. And plus, the Boston has way more holes to fill than just this gluttonous cluster of bigs now that they have. Well, one of those voids was they needed another ball handler, and now they need two more ball handlers. Because exactly so. Uh, I think the thing... And I actually have a question for you really quickly after this, but I think the thing I'll push back against, I don't think you get Christian Wood for that package, just one because of the Rockets' timeline. So you probably need a third team that would value Kemba. You know, is it Kemba's going to Dallas, Kristaps is going to Houston, and then Christian Wood's going to Boston? But I don't know why Houston would value Kristaps more than Christian Wood at this point. Um, he was really good. You would have, if you wanted to make a deal like that, you probably need to include more equity. Now, to that point, I absolutely would have included more equity if it meant bringing back Christian Wood rather than Al Horford, because you're just looking at his partial. And I know people are looking at his 14.5 million partial guarantee for 2022, 2023 and saying, oh, they could waive that. They could stretch it. And then they're going to have cap space. No, 
No, no, no. Don't leave $5 million in dead money on your books for three years. I think they're going to think along the same route and probably let him finish his deal. So I I don't know that you could have gotten, I think you could have gotten more. I don't know if you could have gotten a much better player than Al Horford, but you certainly, if you were going to get Al Horford, shouldn't have been able to to give up as much. And it, like at that point, like could you have gotten Kristaps and kept the number 16 pick? Like was that, like Dallas can't be that high after seeing the way Kristaps moves now. It's like he's on like stilts with cement shoes. Um, but I am, to what I was discussing before, Noah, as an outside perspective, would you give Marcus Smart an extension if you're Boston? Well, as somebody who wants Tom Thibodeau and Marcus Smart to pair up, and I would love to see him in New York, I would not want Boston to give him an extension. But for if, for Boston's necessity, they need to give him an extension because a lot, a lot of teams would probably be vying for him. And he could he will get probably more than the 17.2 on the open market that you were saying. If they want to execute a trade for him, if they don't think that he's going to bring as much value, well, at this point, he would be your primary ball handler besides, um, which is <laughs> a bad thing, um, besides Jason Tatum. You would have to give him an extension, but also you have to understand, if you aren't willing to give him that much, then you have to trade him and probably get, I don't know what you would get back for him. Who would take that trade? Um, Portland would love Marcus Smart, um, but I don't think that right now the most tradable player on their team would include probably a package of CJ, Derek Jones Jr., or whatever. But I don't think they're giving that much up for Marcus Smart. You you would have to trade him if you're not going to give him the extension. But they have. I would. It would be in their best interest to give him that extension. Yeah, um, I would love Marcus Smart in Portland too. And maybe I'm wrong. And I see that um, Sager Trika. I hope I'm not butchering that name too bad is in the room as well and he's a Portland guy so maybe he would be able to push back against that they would just be so they're so tiny then I know Marcus Smart can defend one through four but he like the type of player that that they would need and having him and then having Robert Covington um absolutely massive for for the defense um thank you as always Noah for listening of course course. and I'm gonna remove this Back on an official mic. Um, let's actually make this the last question since I've been rambling here for almost an hour. And so you guys can watch. I have it on in the screen, but so you guys can watch unimpeded Clippers Suns. Um, this last question comes from YNWA213. Who's the best player in this playoffs before the Kawhi injury, please? Uh, maybe you want me to say Kawhi. I, you know, I wouldn't push back against that. He's been, he was incredible. And there's, we talk about two-way workloads. That's what makes Drew Holiday so underrated. Kawhi Leonard defended Luka Doncic on more possessions for more time than anyone on the Clippers. He then defended um, Donovan Mitchell uh, up until his injury, up until Kawhi's injury, more often on more possessions and just spent more general time on him than anyone on Utah. And then do that and also be the number one option on offense. Like, holy friggin' crap. I think he's in there. Kevin Durant has to be in there. Uh, it's weird to see respect for him grow even in a loss. And I don't disagree with it. I'm a hundred percent on board with it. I just think normally the discourse would have been like, Oh, all that for a second round exit, not taking into account all the injuries that, uh, that, that, that Brooklyn obviously had uh, the James Harden discourse got bad for a little bit too, after that win. And there's James Harden, there's real gripes to have about his postseason performance. Uh, that was not one of them. Just he played 139 of a possible 149 minutes hat tip Jackson Frank for pointing this out on Twitter. 
while on one hamstring, basically. Grade two hamstrings, um, grade two hamstring strain is what Harton said it was. That's I'm not an, I wouldn't have played him. And this was also something that I thought um a, a sector of Warriors Twitter kind of made this uh about like Steph saying how KD was praised um when Steph was you know people said he used knee as an excuse. Then they also pointed out that the Warriors were, you know, criticized for playing KD when he ruptured his Achilles. It's I will always one one hundred times out of a hundred default to don't play the players in that situation. I wouldn't have played James Harden if I was Brooklyn. I think it's fine to compliment them for their performance. Uh, I just don't think it was an obligation of them to play. And had there been an injury, I think it's worth the discussion, like there was with Kevin Durant. Should the team have gotten involved there? I know they want, you know, they say that players know their bodies better and they trust them to make the call. I get it. Um, and if the players like, but you you have to deal with the long term implications for Brooklyn. It doesn't look like he was in a position to re-aggravate it. I will also say a hamstring strain while fickle. A lot different from someone who was dealing with an Achilles injury. That was, you know, James Harden could tear his hamstring. It would be, it would be disastrous. He could rupture his quad tendon, whatever. It would be a disaster. But Katie was dealing with an Achilles injury at the time, calf strain, whatever it was called. So I still think it's different, but I get it. Um, I don't think Steph should have been criticized when he was playing injured. What was that? It was it 2016? I think it was like two playoff runs um, as well. So this totally misleads me from the question. But I think Kawhi belongs in there. I think Kevin Durant belongs in there. Um, I'm not going to forget about that KD shot to force overtime in Game 7 ever. I'm still thinking about his 49-point triple-double. It was one of the single best individual performances I've just ever seen. And it was probably you know one of the top five playoff performances from a single player of all time. I think you can throw Joel Embiid in here, too. Uh, what he's done while playing on a meniscus injury has been incredible. I don't think he's necessarily been the same on defense, though he's had his moments. But he's been great. Um, by and large. And then I also think, you know, I know he didn't play a ton, but Damian Lillard was magnificent. He left the playoffs averaging 1.65 points per possession on isolations, which is just like, uh, to like second place to put that in perspective. The last time I checked it was at 1.33. And I know Dame sample size is smaller, but his offensive display was just, it, it was something else. It is, as Kevin Durant's Twitter would say, a spiritual experience watching him play basketball so i i think those are the four guys and i'm not really forgetting anyone there i mean even if you're even trying to think of people who didn't really spend too much time in the postseason i just i don't know who else you would default to do we throw seth curry in here he might belong in here i honestly have have no idea but if i've reached the seth curry um is the best player of these playoffs portion of the podcast it's probably time to end it thank you for everyone who came through on spotify's green room i gotta stop calling it locker room Um, Thank you for everyone who stayed. Shout out to Noah and Sager for still being here towards the end. Until next time, I leave everyone, as always, with a shout out to the one, the only, restricted free agent who is probably going to command a max or near max deal because he absolutely deserves it. Frank Neal.